You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. Y'all enjoying the uh, videos on the 50th anniversary? Have, 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 you, have you noticed now, Dr. Kelly's been in a couple of these, have you noticed that hair getting thinner? <laughs> and you say, and you, and you, you say, well, no, you, you don't have any hair either. That's what Baptist churches do to a preacher. <laughs> uh, if you've got your Bibles, look with me. We've been in Exodus for some time, and I've saved the tabernacle for the end of Exodus. It takes up such an unusual amount of space in the book of Exodus, and it really is the gospel of the Old Testament. Everything about it is speaking of Jesus Christ and the coming of the Messiah. And so I've just waited here to the end and uh, just decided we'll, we'll look at all of this. So we've looked at the tabernacle, we've looked at the bronze altar or the brazen altar, and um, I want you to look at another piece of, some of the old commentaries call it furniture. Uh, I think, I don't know really what you would call it other than equipment. There are two big pieces of equipment or furniture that is in the courtyard, the brazen altar, and then the bronze laver. And that's what I want you to look at this morning in Exodus chapter 30. The interesting thing is that God in his wisdom is giving a lesson in theology to the Hebrews. I want you to think theologically. Um, you know, there's been, we've gone through this whole time where everybody has said, listen, there are people coming into the church, they don't know theological terms. Well, it's about time for some of you to start learning some of this. Uh, I would recommend, I started to bring it with me, the best little single volume systematic theology or theology book is by Charles Ryrie. He was a dear friend of mine, had the pleasure of being his pastor for seven years, did his funeral, but uh, you can go on Christian Book Distributors and get that little book uh, of theology by Charles Ryrie uh, for $28.99. used to get it for $10, but it's $28.99 now. And just begin to learn because God's going to show these Hebrews, he's going to show them things like uh, out of the atonement, He's going to show them uh, substitution. He's going to show um, uh, things like um, uh, penal substitution, penal death. Uh, He's going to show things like um, uh, justification, sanctification, um, purification, um, regeneration. All of these things God is showing. A lot of this you're going to see shows up this morning in this laver that is there in the courtyard. Now, the interesting thing, you've got these two bronze elements that are there. Bronze or brass always stands for judgment. You can see the judgment of God at the altar, and then you see the judgment of God at the laver. God says, if these priests don't watch, uh, wash themselves. Uh, When I tell them to wash, before they do what they do, uh, they're under the penalty of death. 
And so you remember Uzzah who touched the ark uh, to steady it. Um, I suppose that uh, fire would have come out of uh, the presence of God and would have struck whatever priest attempted to enter the tabernacle without washing at the laver first, just like fire came out and struck the two sons of, uh, of Aaron because they offered strange fire. Uh, but here we have these two pieces. Now, I'm going to show you. I want them to put the aerial view up here. Uh, as you walked into this eastern gate, it was the only gate, and I keep making reference to that, it was the only gate, the only place you could enter into this tabernacle complex. It was a picture of Jesus because Jesus is the only way to God the Father. Um, it, we live in such a day where people are constantly saying, there are many ways to God. No, there are many ways to hell. There's one way to God, and that is through Jesus Christ. And as you walked in through this eastern gate here, you would come to this great big bronze altar that we looked at last week, and then you would come to the laver, and then you would enter. If you were a priest, you could enter the tabernacle at that point. Now, um, you say, well, now, that's great. That's all for priests. That doesn't have anything to do with me. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. On Saturday of Labor Day weekend, I'm going up. Our sub-30 group, the ones that are freezing, our sub-30 group, our college students and young professionals are going on a retreat up to Huntsville, and I'm going up. The whole retreat is on their identity. And uh, I'm going to talk to them about the most forgotten, little-known, uh, greatly misunderstood doctrine uh, that you find in Scripture, and that is the priesthood of the believer. Nobody ever thinks about that anymore. No one ever talks about it. And when they do, they're generally mistaken about what that means. Uh, we believe in the priesthood of the believer because the New Testament, listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Now, before I go any further with that, he's not talking to a preacher's conference. He's talking to the average person in the average church throughout Asia Minor who have written him about their salvation. And so he writes them back and he says, you need to understand. So I'm going to say it to you. You need to understand you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own possession, a people who are God's own possession that you might proclaim. Now listen to this, not the preacher, not the staff, but you, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who brought you out of darkness into his majestic light. Amen. Now that's who you are. So you are a priest. Uh, male or female, you are a priest. And uh, someday, maybe I'll come back and I'll share that message with y'all, but uh, you need to understand this is for you. What's being said here is for the church and for our day. Now, when you entered into that eastern gate and you came to that, to that laver, you came to something that was never separated from the altar. The altar and the laver were always together. You could not separate the two. It was vitally important that the two were there because God, in his great wisdom, in symbol form, was showing how salvation worked. His redemption, his sanctification. His justification, his sanctification. How the two 
were always placed side by side there in that area. Now, we have, and the interesting thing is this, if you look at this passage in Exodus 30, beginning in verse 17, the Lord spoke to Moses, and he gives him this laver. We're only told that it's made out of bronze, and it has evidently two parts. Now, let me show you a couple of different lavers, guys. I know I did it at the end of the sermon last time. Let me do it at the beginning, because I'm going to keep them at least another 45 minutes today. This, you see, here's the here's the bottom part. There's some that believe it was this. This is where they would wash their feet. This is where they would wash their hands and their face. Here's another picture of one, just the, this kind of base, and that they would take something like a, 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 a smaller bowl, and they would um, uh, pour it over their feet and their hands. Here's another kind. Uh, this is uh, one with a spigot on it. Some believe that it looked like this, that they had devised some kind of spigot uh, to pour water out of that. And guys, if you've got the one from Solomon's temple, now let me show you this. This is fascinating. Now we have a description of this. It, It sat on the back of 12 oxen. This thing was huge. In fact, they called it the sea. Uh, And there were five. I only get one, two, three, four here. But there were five out each side, smaller lavers, uh, so that there were ten, five on this side, five on this side. Uh, And they would dip out of this to fill these lavers that they would wash in. Now, that's in Solomon's temple. That's not the tabernacle. So we'll go back to the tabernacle now. That's, That's another series for another day. Uh, Let's go back now to Exodus chapter 30. And look at this, and you say, well, what does all of this symbolize? It symbolizes cleansing. It's the cleansing of God from sin. And we have no dimension. The interesting thing, we could not tell, Denny, you have to build us a labor. Well, how do I build it? There are no dimensions. If you look in Scripture, it's the only piece of furniture, the only thing in the entire tabernacle. You get a dimension for every board Every piece of cloth, everything in there, you get a dimension, a measurement, uh, a concept, a a design for except the laver. There's nothing there. You'll never find it. If you read these few verses, that's it. You'll make a bronze laver. Uh, You shall make a laver of bronze, and its base is bronze. For washing, you shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar. You shall put water in it. Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet from it. And then you've got about two more verses, and that's basically it. We're not told the dimension, the circumference. If it's to be round, we're not told if it's to be round. I guess a laver is round. Uh, But we're not told anything about it. And you ask the question, well, why is that? Why why would some... You get the showbread table. You get the candelabra with detail. You get the uh, incense altar. You get the Ark of the Covenant. You get the veil before that, which we'll look at it next Sunday as the Lord leads Everything else gets a dimension and a description except the laver. Why? That laver represents the cleansing of Jesus Christ, and you can never measure the cleansing of Jesus Christ. You can't measure. There is no dimension to it. There is no measurement. There There is no limit to it, and you will never exhaust the cleansing of the blood of Jesus Christ. So now let me show you something out of that. Boy, if y'all were Pentecostals, I'm just telling you, 
What a joy to think. Do y'all think you exasperate God? Well, I'll confess, okay? Hey, I do. I, I go to God sometimes. I said, Lord, I've had to pray about this so many times. I'm so embarrassed to even lift my name or call your name. Lift my head or call your name. Because I, I keep coming to you with this and with this and with this again and again. The great news of the gospel is this, is you will never exhaust the grace or the cleansing power of Jesus Christ. Boy, that's good. Let's just go home. No, you're not going to do it. So look with me now, because this labor is going to show us a couple of things. It's the place of revelation of the need for purification. Listen to what he says right here. He comes and he says, you shall also make a laver of bronze. Now, since the gates of Eden, God has shown man and has demonstrated and has stated that no one who is unclean will ever come before him. He has said that. His word says that. And in fact, uh, let me show you something in Deuteronomy. Now, I'm going to use a fair amount of Scripture. Just go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 23. Put your finger back there in Exodus 30, Deuteronomy chapter 23, and I want you to listen to a verse. And as you listen to this verse, uh, put Valleydale in there. Put your home in there. Uh, put your place of work in there. Uh, Deuteronomy 23, verse 14, since the Lord your God walks in the midst of Valleydale, or since the Lord your God walks in the midst of your den or home or kitchen to deliver you and to defeat your enemies before you, therefore your camp, your church, Valleydale, your home must be holy. And he must not see anything indecent among you, or he will turn away from you. You say, well, now, that's all Old Testament. Well, good. I'm glad you said that because I want you to go to 2 Corinthians with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And I want you to listen to what Paul says there as he quotes the Old Testament. It's a word for us in the culture in which we live where we keep bringing into the church and into our life and into our home all the stuff out of this culture. Uh, Paul comes and he says this to the Corinthians, therefore, in verse 17, chapter 6, 2 Corinthians, therefore come out from their midst, come out of all of that cultural influence and be separate, says the Lord. Don't touch what is unclean and I will welcome you. There's a word here about being clean. It's a word about our spiritual cleanliness, about our personal cleanliness before God. Now, I want you to go back to Exodus with me, but this time, keep your finger, chapter 30, but look at chapter 38, and I'm going to show you one verse that deals with the labor here. Exodus chapter 38, verse 8, and listen to what it says. It says, moreover, he made the laver of bronze with its base of bronze from the mirrors of the serving women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Now you get a clearer picture of what that thing is made out of. It's made out of the mirrors of the women who worked at the doorway of the tabernacle. They had these mirrors. And you say, well, it's not a mirror like we have today, a piece of glass 
with, you know, what is that on the back of them? Silver, mercury, whatever it is on the back of them that shows that accurate reflection. They would take a piece of bronze and they would polish it and 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 polish it until it would begin to reflect. They could see their reflection. It was not a perfect reflection, not like looking in a mirror today, but that polished bronze would reflect the face. So he took all of these mirrors for the women, and he evidently made the entire thing out of that. The base, the laver, everything was made out of it so that when a priest walked over to wash himself, as he leaned over, he could see his reflection in in the water there. Water will reflect that, but it went much deeper than that, and that's the whole purpose here. It's not just to see what is on the surface, but the implication is is that much deeper than that, there is a picture of us and our own twisted, distorted soul. You've you've seen mirrors at the fair and the circus that, you know, you walk in front of one and it makes you real skinny and tall or one makes you short and fat or one makes you really all kind of curvy and everything. Well, they would look down. It was not a perfect reflection And it was not intended to be a perfect reflection. It was to reflect somewhat of a distorted image because that's who we are in our fallenness. We are not the man or the woman that God created us to be. The last time that happened, their names were Adam and Eve. We now are born with a sin nature with a twisted, distorted, fallen nature. It doesn't take much for me to sin. It doesn't take much for you to sin. And that is what has distorted us so that when these priests would walk over to that laver and they looked down in that, the first thing they saw there was a distorted reflection of who they were that said, you need to be washed, not just on the outside, but there's something deeper there that has got to be washed and taken care of. It also speaks of the picture of God's Word. That when we look into the Word of God, this is the labor today because it shows me as I am. And uh, I want to show you that in a couple of passages. Look to James chapter 1. James talks about this when he speaks of looking into the Word of God. James chapter 1 and verse 22 begins like this. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror and once he has looked at himself, has gone away and he's immediately forgotten what kind of person. You you see that something needs to be done somewhere. I'll walk away from there. Debbie will say, You've got to do something with that hair of yours. And I said, hey, I'm just glad I got some up there. Just leave it alone. Let it do what it's doing, you know? And that's what it is. A man will look at himself in the mirror. And this is more of a man than a woman. A man will look at himself in the mirror and walk away and think, well, that's, you know, that's all right. Looks pretty good to me, you know, kind of deal. That's what he's saying. We come to the place where we look into the Word of God and it shows us for who we are for about 35 or 40 minutes in here. And then we walk out the door and we completely forget everything that was ever said. And we forget what God has shown us and what God's been trying to say to us. Listen, that's what, uh, that's what James says. Listen to Job in Job chapter 42. He says, I have heard of you with the ear, but now I have seen you with my eyes. And he says, you, therefore, I retract, I draw back 
I, I, I reverse and I repent in dust and ashes. Isaiah said this same thing in Isaiah chapter 6. When he saw the Lord high and lifted up, he, he said, woe is me for I'm ruined. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Peter said the same thing. Jesus gets in his boat. Jesus tells him, launch out. I fished all night. That's all right. Launch on out. Let your nets down. And when they catch that huge draught of fish, Peter falls on his knees and he says, depart from me, O Lord, for I'm a sinful man. When I come to the word of God, listen, Solomon says it's like coming to water. I see myself here in the word of God as in water, face reflects face. This is a picture of the word of God. This labor shows me who I am, not just surfacely, but there at the depths. And I see myself for who I am in the Word of God, and I see that there's something there that desperately needs purification. Now, that leads me to the second thing. It's not just a place of reflection. It's a place of actual purification. This is where they would come. Now, I'm back in Exodus 30, verse 18. You shall make a laver of bronze. There it is with its base of bronze. For what? What's the reason? For washing. That's what he says right there. It's there for washing. It's there that the priest would leave that altar. They would leave that altar because they were filthy and they would go over and they washed. Now, I won't take the time to take you to Leviticus chapter 16, but you can go home and look at Leviticus chapter 16. There are constant washing. There are at least four that I've counted early this morning in Leviticus. Aaron washes twice on the Day of Atonement. Um, Yom Kippur, the high day of atonement, uh, Aaron would start the day by taking a bath. And he would put on that the high priestly outfit, that high priestly uniform, and he would go out. He would take a bull to sacrifice for his own sin. It was a bull for a sacrifice for a sin offering for himself. First, he had to, he had to sacrifice for himself first before he could sacrifice for the people. And then he took a ram, and that ram was for the whole burnt offering. And then he would take two male goats, and uh, he would cast the, the Urim and the Thummim, thummim and uh, it would fall on one of those goats. And the one that it fell on, he would sacrifice that one. The second one would be uh, the scapegoat. And so the scapegoat, once he sacrificed this, he would come and he would lay his hands on the head of that scapegoat. And there would be a priest who would take that scapegoat out of the calf, camp and way out into the wilderness, out of the sight, and he would pin that thing up. He would stake it out, out there, because it was a picture of taking the sins away. And as he had done all of that, then Aaron goes into the holy place, not the holy of holies, but the holy place, and there in the holy place, he would take a second bath. And he would dress all over again. He would put on yet another uniform of the high priest. And he would come out and the people would see that he was perfectly clean. And then he would take the fat of all of those animals. And when your neighbor's grilling steaks, not snakes, but steaks. (laughs) When he's grilling steaks and you're walking down the street, man, you just want to go visit your neighbor, don't you? I mean, it smells so good. What is it that smells so good? The fat. The fat. The Bible says, eat the fat. 
The wife says, you better not touch it. Um, he took all the fat and he laid it up on the altar. He was then able to offer up what smells so good. And then you had the guy that was going with the goat and another guy who would come with the shovel and the pails. And then he would take all of the ashes, all of the skin of the animal, any of the bones, anything that had been left, and he would go outside the gate. He would take that out, the Bible says, to a clean place, and there he would burn it all up, what had not been burned up, in a place that no one would see, in a place that was called clean. But before he could come back in, he had to take a bath and dress over again, and then he could come back into the camp of Israel. The guy that had taken the goat out had to come and take a bath and had to dress all over again before he could come back into the camp of Israel because God was painting a picture over and over and over and over again. Your sins are gone. They're gone. You may remember them, but I have taken them all away. They're covered now with the blood of Jesus Christ. You may live in your past. You may live in sin from a day gone by, but let me tell you something. God's given every indication in his word that no matter what your sin was, it's been taken away. I'm telling you. Now let me give you these two things, and let me show you this. The altar, the labor. The altar was there for sacrifice. It was there that the blood of the animal was smeared on the horns of the altar and that the blood was caught and it was thrown up against the altar. It was there and a place of justification. Sin was paid for right there. Uh, justification came. In justification came the restoration of relationship. At that point, now, I could have relationship with God. The laver represents something separate or in addition to. It was the place of sanctification. It's where I was cleansed. It's where my sin is washed away. It's where my filth is dealt with. It is a sanctification place, and it is making possible fellowship. So the two together give the, the, the aspect of salvation where justification takes place and then, and then sanctification, where this reconciliation with God takes place and then where fellowship comes. I can have fellowship now with God. I'm reconciled with God because of the blood of Christ, because my sins have been washed away. I can now, in sanctification, I can have fellowship with you. Have, have you ever, this, it doesn't happen here, but let me tell you, there are churches where it happens where two Christians get upset with each other. It really does. It happens. You've heard it, but it does happen. I've seen it in places. Not here, but I've seen it. And, and this Christian gets upset with this Christian and this one says something that hurts this one. This one says something back that hurts that. And I want to tell you something. They pass in the hallways of the church as if they don't exist. That'll even happen in your home. 
where you'll walk past each other for a day and a half. You've not spoken a word. You've not said a word. You just live like, not, 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 not like God intended, like sweet mates. You've now become cellmates in this place. And you just pass each other. Well, do you know what you can do to restore all of that? Get to an altar where the fellowship can be restored. And that's what happens at the laver. That's what the laver is showing us. The altar has shown us this, but now the laver comes and it shows us that. It shows us this whole thing, this whole process of sanctification. Now, this is what Jesus is talking about in John chapter 3. In verse 5, when he speaks to Nicodemus, you remember Nick came to Jesus at night in John chapter 3, and uh, he wants to know uh, about salvation. And the Lord says to him in verse 5 of John 3, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, that's amen, amen, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, let me tell you something. People will come to that and say, well, that means baptism Let me tell you, get it straight, water does not save you. It's a picture of the Word of God. The Word of of God is often shown as water in Scripture. You'll often see that. That's what you're seeing right here. He comes and he says, you're born of water. Now, what does that mean? The water of the Word of God. It means this, how are you saved? Faith comes by and hearing by. Ah. Nobody out of the blue who's never heard the word of God just up and says, you know what, I think I need to go to Jesus Christ for salvation. They hear the word of God. It stirs their faith. And faith, I personally believe faith and regeneration happen instantaneously at the same time. And I turn and confess, so here I am, I'm born of water, I'm born of the Word and the Spirit. You're never saved apart from the Holy Spirit. Listen to this. Let me take you on over here to Ephesians. Let Let me get, there's a verse in Ephesians I want to read to you, and I can't think where it is, but let me, let me find it. Um, okay, here it is, chapter 5, verse 26. Paul's talking about husbands loving their wives just as Christ loved the church. Well, Christ loved the church how? He gave himself up for it. He died for it. He got on a cross for the church. Why did he do that? Verse 26, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. That's not baptism there either. That's a picture of the word, the word of God that will purify you, cleanse you. But you say, I'm cleansed by the blood. Yes. Just hang on. Yes. All of this is going to come together in just a moment. In fact, do this. Go to John chapter 19, and you'll see it all come together right there. John chapter 19, Jesus is crucified. But coming to Jesus, chapter 19, verse 33, but coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. Here, in the one sacrifice offered up on the altar of the cross, the blood and the water now come from the one source. You've brought together the altar and the laver in the body of Jesus Christ. 
There it is. Now, they came to that water to cleanse themselves. Now, what was the water that was in that laver? You read about it in Jeremiah uh, a couple of times, I believe. You'll read about it also in the New Testament. And the water that they put in there is called living water. Now, what is living water? Well, in the, in the mind of the Hebrew, it's this. It's water that has water coming into it and water going out of it. If you go to Israel with me, I take everybody down to En Gedi where David was, and the story is about David down there, but I'll show them this whole concept that En Gedi, if you go back up, if you climb back up through the mountain there, and it's a difficult way to get back up in there, um, there, is, there, there are a couple of caves back up in there where I, I'm convinced David stayed, and there is a fresh supply of living water. Living water is running water. There is this great, tall, high waterfall of all this water that is coming, and it pours down. It's beautiful. It pours down into a pool about the size of this pulpit area up here. And it is the most um, beautiful, aqua-colored, beautiful water that is there. It's fr- you can drink it. It's fresh. It runs out of there, and it runs down a stream all the way down through these two mountains where you go back up into there. And it runs out of there, and it runs down. And you can look and see where it runs down. It runs into the Dead Sea. All this water runs into the Dead Sea, but it never runs out, and the sea is dead. It is. Nothing can live in it. The salt content, you can't. It's the weirdest place in the earth to go down there. It's the lowest place in the earth, the weirdest place in the earth, because you cannot sink in that water. You will not sink in that water. I've watched big old boys get down in that water, and they will not sink in that water. It just holds them up. That's dead water. Living water is fresh water. Well, they had fresh water, and you say, but a pastor, where did fresh water come from out in the desert? Where did fresh water come from when they were in the wilderness. Well, I want you to look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And I want you to listen to Paul as Paul talks about this. Now, Paul was a trained rabbi. He sat at the feet of Gamaliel, and he's talking about something that he got uh, from the school of the rabbis, from rabbinic training. For I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. He's talking about them going through the Red Sea, being baptized into Moses. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. You see, all of this is symbolic. It's a picture. All ate the same spiritual food. We're eating the same spiritual food. It's not ma- Well, it was. You had manna out in the... You had... Ri- that is God-given manna out there in the foyer today. Krispy Kreme donuts. Amen? Yes. Man, yes. Here it is. He says, we all ate the same spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. The rabbis said that the rock that gave out water when Moses struck it was the rock that rolled behind the whole nation of the Hebrews as they went through the death. Now, I don't know. This is the only place. This is what the rabbis said. And I think Paul is using this as an example because what was that, what was that water? What was that rock? What's it say? Christ. Christ. Where does our cleansing come from? Christ. He's the rock 
out of which comes the water of purification. Now, let me, let me give you one last thing. The last thing is this. I want you to look at the place, the position of the labor. labor. Let me have that overhead view one more time, guys. Right there. You see it? It's always right there. This altar is always right here. Come in through that gate. There it is, right there. You, you never had this inverted. They never put the laver here and the altar there. The laver was always here because these priests would go from here. Every time they sacrificed an animal, they would have to leave that after they sacrificed, go here and wash, come back to sacrifice the next one. They'd sacrifice the next one, go here and wash, and then come back again. And if they were going into the tabernacle itself, they would come here, sacrifice, go to the laver, wash, and then go into the holy place of the tabernacle. It was always like that. That position is very important. It's there for a reason. It speaks of sanctification in three ways. First of all, it is progressive sanctification. That is, they would go there progressively. Over and over and over again, they would, uh, I, I'm, I'm sorry, not progressive sanctification, but um, yeah, progressive. They would, they would go there. They would go there and go there and go there. And so they would wash again and again and again. They would have to go. Now, that's what progressive sanctification speaks of is this constant washing. I'm going back, I'm washing again, and I'm washing again. Listen, let me, let me tell you something. What that's a picture of is that's a picture of our repenting before God. I had a couple of students out of a seminary when I was preaching in Dallas on repentance. They were not in a Southern Baptist seminary. They were out of another school who came to me and said, uh, there's only need for repentance one time in a believer's life. You never repent after that. I said, well, you may never need it, but I do. Um, because I, I've, I've got to go several times a day and ask the Lord, Lord, will you forgive me for that thought? Will you forgive me for what I said? Will you forgive me uh, for how I've acted? I have to go plenty of times. I, in fact, I go so often, I get embarrassed. You ever get embarrassed going to God and asking for forgiveness? Amen. Well, three of us do. I mean, there are times I go to the Lord and I just say, God, I'm just, I, I just, I'm too embarrassed to even lift my head or call on your name, but I don't know where else to go but to you. Because I've come back to you with a sin over and over and over and over and over again. And God, I'm asking you to forgive me, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. Do we ever stop and ask God to forgive us? Do we ever get to the end of a day and have a time of prayer where we just say, oh God, the things that I've done today have not all been pleasing to you. And so I come to you and I confess what I know, what I don't know, bring to my mind. And let me just confess so that the fellowship is not impeded. I don't go and ask for forgiveness in order to be saved again. I'm, I'm saved. But I desire and long to have fellowship, relationship with God. And so I go often, every day, and some of us have not been in weeks to the Lord, maybe months. We come into this place 
to worship God. How can you come in here not having asked God before you walked in here to forgive you of sin? No wonder you don't get anything out of service. Well, this is just boring to me. It's boring because you probably have not been to God and asked for forgiveness of sin. Otherwise, this whole concept that the limitless grace of God makes me want to shout. So you've got that. Now you've got positional sanctification. Positional sanctification. Do you know what that labor did in that spot? It provided this positional sanctification so that they could wash and then go into the tabernacle to serve God. It was positional in that it was there in that place where they could go and they could wash themselves And in washing themselves, being cleansed, this positional sanctification enabled me to preach this morning. Part of what I do on Sunday mornings is not just go through this Word of God, but I am constantly praying, oh God, bless this, bless that. Forgive me as things come to my mind so that I am positionally sanctified in order to stand in a pulpit and handle the Word of God. But then I'll come to the last. And the last is this. It's perfect sanctification. Beloved, we are now the children of God. But it has not yet appeared what we shall be. But we know this, that when he appears, we will be made to be like him. Listen, let me tell you something. There's coming a day when you're going to hear a shout and the trumpet of God and the voice of an archangel and the dead in Christ is going to rise first. You know why? Because they got six feet to go before they catch up with us. They're going to rise first and then we who are alive and remain are going to join them and we're going to meet the Lord in the air and in the twinkling of an eye in a nanosecond you are going to be changed into an incorruptible, immortal body You're still going to be you, but you're going to be a glorified you. And listen, a perfectly sanctified you. So that you will never remember your sins or sinning again. Because God has said, nothing. listen, God has said, nothing unclean will come into my presence. And here you are. Do you know what you are? You are Jesus' gift to God the Father And Jesus doesn't give his father tainted stuff. Y'all going, man, that's so negative today. I feel so beat down. How in the world can you feel beat down? I've just told you, Jesus doesn't give anything but what is perfect to the father. And that's us. That's us. But you got to be clean. You got to be clean. In 1840, the great hospital of the world in that day was in Vienna, Austria. Uh, All of this modern technology, it would have been modern in that day. Everything new, all this new technique, all these new ideas were coming into this hospital. It was the Mayo Clinic of that day. But they had one issue, and the issue was this. They had an unusually high rate of death among women who were in their maternity ward. Somewhere around 25 to 30% of the women in their maternity ward were dying. 
And uh, they couldn't figure it out. It was like one in five, one in six women that would come in there that would die. And uh, there was a young doctor that came to the hospital, hired by the hospital. He was Hungarian. His name was Ignaz Semmelweis. That's S-E-M-M-E-L-W-I-E-S-S. Semmelweis sounds like uh, uh, Tolkien dreamed that name up, doesn't it? Semmelweis was his name, Hungarian. And he was there in that hospital in, in, in Austria, in Vienna, and they put him over the maternity ward. And he thought to himself, I've got to figure out what's going on here. Why are there so many deaths of women in the maternity ward? And so he watched and he noted, and he took note of every doctor that came in and out the maternity ward and uh, what they would do and what their practice was and all of that. And he discovered something. He discovered that a lot of these doctors would go down to the morgue when one of their patients died and that they would get in on the um, autopsy of uh, their dead patient and then they would leave there and come to the room of yet another patient and do an examination of a woman in labor. And that woman would generally die. And he noticed that those women whose doctors did not go down to the morgue, who examined them, they did not die. And so he put two and two together and he figured out, hey, this is what's going on. Something is happening from the morgue. Uh, and it's being brought into these rooms with these other women, and it's killing them. And so he decided that it was something that their hands were touching, and so he had chlorinated water, a chloride water that they would wash their hands in. Do you know that when he initiated that into the maternity ward, that the death rate nearly stopped? Instead of one out of every five or six women, it was one out of every 45 to 50 women. It went down to a little over 1% of the women coming in there who were dying um, in the maternity ward. And so they saw that and they decided, well, we're going to do this all over the hospital. They did it all over the hospital and the doctors revolted. They just went up in arms. They got furious. They said, there's no proof of any of this that Samuel Weiss is doing, that this is all hysteria, that these women are dying from something. One of the things they thought the women were dying from was poisonous air. They had all kinds of bizarre ideas, but they would not accept Samuel Weiss and what he was doing. They wouldn't even look at the facts. In fact, they got furious at him. They were angry. They were writing bitter letters, angry letters, to the hospital administration, to the newspapers, until the hospital eventually fired him. He went over to Budapest, and he went to a hospital uh, in Budapest. And in Budapest, um, there he enacted the same thing in the maternity ward. Deaths went down, and they did it throughout the hospital. The doctors there revolted. They had, in, they had entire lecture series for doctors on how Samuel Weiss was wrong in his theory of, uh, I don't know what they called it then, bacteria or germs or viruses or whatever, but they, he was wrong in all of that. And it drove him mad. He knew that's what it was, and he drove him mad. He became so frustrated, so angry, he acted out in such an upset way, they put him in an insane asylum. At 47 years of age, they put him in an insane asylum. And he was dead within two weeks. The guards beat him up one night. And they cut his hand. And as they cut his hand, 
he contracted a blood poisoning and died because of something unclean in his blood system that he had been trying his entire medical life to advise people about. Now let me tell you something. We can come in here and come in here and come in here and come in here. But if we don't go and get washed, we're not clean. Let's stand. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.